Hello and welcome to Hashing It Out, a very niche podcast about hash browns and who wore them best. I could wear a hash brown pretty well, Elaine, but I should point out that this is in fact a podcast about board games and we have played quite a few of them this weekend because we went to this little convention called UK Games Expo, the largest one in the United Kingdom and one of the largest ones in the world. Mm, And it's growing every year. Oh, it's very big. It's so big, I can barely hold it in my two hands, and sometimes I have to prop it up with a knee as well. Wow, that is big. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and actually, I've seen you there, because mostly you were with me, and I've seen you play quite a few board games, and... Do you know what I think is a good idea? Let's talk about them. I know, right? Why why don't we tell people what board games we're going to be talking about today? So, first come is Pandemic. Rapid response. So rapid that we are rapidly responding to it with our overview in this podcast. Next, we're also going to be talking about Copenhagen, which is a very, very beautiful game about Copenhagen. Not last and... Also, not least, is Letter Jam, an excellent party game from Czech Games Edition uh, that we played a demo of and I'm very excited to tell you about. And finally, the big deal of this podcast is Blood on the Clock Tower, the so far, for some reason, controversial social deduction game that's recently been on Kickstarter and we got a chance to play it. And boy, do I have some thoughts. If you're new to the No Pun Included podcast, you should know that this podcast has a home. And that home is nopunincluded.com slash podcast, where each episode is not only posted, but also there's a lovely comment section. So I invite you to please go to nopunincluded.com slash podcast and leave us a very nice comment about any of the games that we discussed or anything else at all that you would like. Leave a comment, maybe find a friend. Who knows? But let's first talk about Pandemic. Review copy graciously provided by Asmodee North America, because this 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 was pretty cool. I was very excited to receive this. Yeah. This is from designer, wait for it, Kane Klanko, which is not... That's not Matt Leacock. That's not Matt Leacock at all. But it says Pandemic on the box. Mind-blowing. I know. And here's the thing. I think there's something fishy about that, and we're going to discuss it maybe in just a little bit after we tell you about this game. What is this game about? Well, Pandemic, as always, is the game about everyone's favorite subject. Disease. <laughs> Don't you just love it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and how to cure those diseases. Yes. So here's the thing. Pandemic, uh, rapid response, unlike other pandemic games, is still a cooperative game. But this time it's a real time game, which means it has a little blue sand timer. And boy, is it real time. <laughs> oh, this is one of the most stressful games I have played in recent times. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But but here's the thing, right? So unlike Pandemic Regular or Legacy or what have you, the action isn't taking place on the map of the world, even though around the board you have all these cities that are so familiar in, to the Pandemic universe. Yeah. Like... Bogota. Yes. Or... New York. Paris. Essen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never forget Essen. No, uh, but but you're you're not on the map of the world. You're on a map of a super duper airplane that seems to have some sort of disease prevention facility inside of it. And all you're doing is you're basically running around this airplane in its different rooms. Yeah, you're like the Red Cross or the Red Crescent, whizzing about like delivering. Um, parcels parcels of cure yeah you're you're basically some sort of a weird cross between a doctor and a ups delivery driver (laughs) (laughs) but just on an airplane so basically the deal is that every room in this airplane is is a section of the airplane that treats with a particular type of substance that could help people out so it might be lightning because people need lightning it might be bandages because people need those some food or i don't understand the lightning well i think it's just like electricity you get like batteries or whatever like Like, shock treatment well no because you know like disease has overtaken the town and the facilities aren't working so oh i see you deliver some yeah Yeah, okay you're delivering electricity to the world so Mm -hmm. people can play with their nintendo switch whilst they're dying of the cough or <laughs> dying of the cough 
<laughs> well, I, I, I didn't want to include a real disease because people might get upset. Uh-huh. So you have these rooms, they have these supplies, and all you're trying to do is roll dice as quick as you can uh, to basically be able to load up those dice into the back of the airplane, where I presume once you fly to the correct city, you will just drop them out of your airplane yeah. and they'll land and with, little, with little parachutes. Mm-hmm. This is not in the game. This is just in with, in, no, in your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, This is in your mind mind imagination. But here's the cool thing. So the, so the way Pandemic Rapid Response differs from other real-time games rather than from Pandemic is that you have a turn... And the other players are not taking their turns simultaneously. They actually have to wait until you finish Mm. your turn. And unlike other dice-based real-time games, where you roll dice as fast as you can to get the results that you want, you can only roll the dice three times. You roll them initially, Mm. and then you can re-roll them twice. And that's where the stress comes in, because if you're not getting what you want, you're very painfully aware that the other players are looking at you. And there's this sort of, like expectation for you to get the right thing because delivering these supplies to the back of the airplane seems to be like what a three-step process so first of all you need to get enough dice that are then locked in until you can actually get them out and get those supplies moving to the back of the airplane then you need to get enough airplane symbols to actually fly to the right city and then you need to get enough symbols to actually unload them but even if you manage to do all of that you're generating waste and you if you generate too much waste, then you're going to lose the game. And to prevent that, you need to go into the waste recycling room and spend dice there. So it's this really frantic, really fast-paced dice chuck, chuck, chuck. Oh, I didn't get what I want. Pass the turn. And it keeps going and going and going. And guess what? You only have two minutes to do all of that until the timer runs out. Well, the cool thing is that other players can help you out. So you're going, what do I need? What do I need? You've rolled your dice and you, you're trying to find what where you need to put those dice. And the other players can go, you need to go here, you need to go here. But you can't discuss it when the timer isn't timing. So you can't speak about what you're going to be doing before you flip that timer, which yeah. is the thing that makes it so stressful. And see, I found that incredibly frustrating. So the, when the timer runs out, you don't immediately lose a game, even though you only have two minutes. No, you take off a time token. Yeah, and your objective is to deliver all the supplies that a particular city needs. And there's, depending on the difficulty, difficulty, a number of cities that you need to deliver to. And so, for example, you might need to deliver to five cities over the course of the game. And every time you deliver to a city, you get a new time token. And when the time runs out, that's when you spend the time token. But every time the timer runs out, you get a new city. So there's, there's, there's more things to plan for and, and more pressure. I, I guess a lot of the time you're just planning, like your, your plans revolve around one city. And if you're kind of generating extra resources more than you need to, then you might be like, oh, okay, that'll be good in this next city and we might go there next. But you're basically focusing on just one thing and trying to do everything in time. And here's the thing, Elaine. Uh, this is all nice, but I found Pandemic rapid response to be nice and i think that's the best thing that i can say about it and i think you mentioned that you can't discuss when the timer runs out so when the timer runs out you can pause the game and have a little bit of a breather which is nice in a real-time game but i think that they missed the mark completely by saying look you just can't talk about the game and we kind of ended up cheating a little bit because we ended up when the timer had run out saying okay here's how i'm gonna spend my turn well that wasn't on purpose it was just to try and further the game yeah it it felt natural to talk about it and i think maybe in playtesting they discovered that oh people really want to talk about that so let's add a little bit of extra pressure and remove that ability because if you both have if two players have decided to do the same thing and you haven't spoken about mm. it, then that two minutes is not long enough for one player to replan their whole turn <laughs> like, and decide what they need to do because you've already done the thing that they were going to do. Well, here's the thing. Remember Magic Maze, right? Another real-time cooperative game. And actually, when the timer runs out, that's, it, that's the opposite moment because you're not allowed to speak in Magic Maze, right? But when the timer runs out, you get this breather. You get to relax and you get to go... Ah, okay, phew, mm. time is off, 
well, actually, the timer's still running in Magic Maze, but you but you are allowed that one moment of, yeah. like, hey, let's have a conversation. Let's plan this out. And instead, what Pandemic Rapid Response wants you to do, it wants you to have those conversations whilst the timer is running. And guess what? That's not fun. No, and sometimes you find yourself passing because you just because you know another player has something to do and you can't think quickly enough to do anything. Yeah, they might be in the right room and you're far away and your turn is useful, so you just go, I'll roll the dice no, and I'll pass. Your turn is not useful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know why I'm so bothered about the whole, you know, you can't talk thing, but I think playing now boarding has permanently changed my magic maze yeah and magic maze permanently changed my mind about real-time games and what's fun in them and not and not and certainly having that breather moment and being able to plan for me is one of the most fun parts of them you know because it lets you kind of power down and go okay let's refocus let's recenter let's let's have something cohesive and sensible because it stops the game feeling stressful Mm. like it's it makes it quick and fast when when the when that timer starts you're you're doing things quickly and that feels neat but then you have that power down moment where you go okay what can we do sensibly to try and win this game and you don't have that in in rapid response i don't i think i liked it more than you did and i can understand what they're trying to do they're trying to generate that excitement and trying to generate that um that they're trying to generate stress and and what it might really feel like if you're on a plane trying to deliver supplies quickly. And to an extent, the pandemic, the game does that. Um, you feel that stress of, okay, I have to go here, you have to go here, like, let's do this quickly before disease takes over the world. And I, I see what they're trying to do in a, in a small box game. But I think for for me, it didn't hit the spot. Well, Here's the thing, though, I, I, why I keep coming back to this and why I seem to have a real sort of like grudge against this element of the game is that I feel like it could be entirely avoided because I think the reason, I maybe you're right, maybe they added it because of the whole adding tension and panic, or maybe they just thought that that's the right difficulty of the game because if people start talking to each other, then the game becomes, becomes too, easy. too easy. But the thing about that is that that's so easy to fix because there's literally multiple difficulty modes in the game and there's also like crisis cards. So if you mm. want to add a randomizer element of bad things mm. happening to you, you can have that in the game as well. They don't recommend it at the start and I understand why. <laughs> but playing with five cities, that's straight up easy mode, you know? And it's not surprising that it's easy because we beat the game on our first attempt. Touch and go, but we did manage to do it. Yeah, just in the last two minutes. Yeah. We had two minutes to... I think we had about 30 seconds in total. Well, yeah. Yeah, left. So so that was neat, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that moment of winning. And I feel like I'm harping on the game a little bit too much because ultimately... It could have been so much more. But the thing is, we did win, but we did also discuss things when we maybe weren't supposed to have discussed them. A That's true. Bit. A little bit. We we did cheat, but we did cheat sort of like naturally. It, it just oh, kind it of emerged. Yeah. yeah, we didn't say, okay, we're going to ignore this rule and <laughs> yeah. just talk. It was just, yeah, it was just a natural thing that, that we did. Which is a funny thing about design, if you think about it, because why... why remove something that comes naturally to people as a possibility from the game to make it more stressful to make it more tense but surely that's less fun because if people are inclined to naturally do something as a game designer i would probably and i'm not a game designer but saying if i was a game designer i would probably want to you know really zero in on that and make that element of the game fun but but here's the thing uh I would also buy your argument that, you know, this is deliberately done to induce mm. stress if I thought that this game was originally designed as a pandemic game. And mm. I don't. I feel like it was a design that maybe Mr. Klenko pitched to Z-Man or Asmodee or whoever is responsible for pandemic. And they went, oh, wait, we have pandemic. This is a perfect fit because nothing about this game feels like it's a pandemic game at Not all. Not really. Yeah. And 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 I understand that. I think I think that's an element of Asmodee trying to make the whole pandemic universe thing. And it's especially evident since they uh they've announced they're actually uh opening a line of books, you know, mm. like a book publisher mm. to publish books on 
on the universes of Asmodee, <laughs> which is, you know, like, you know, Adventures in Catan or... I think that's cool. I, do you think that's yeah, cool? Yeah, I do think that's cool. But, like, imagine what a book on Pandemic would actually be like. It would be either a really trashy novel about, you know, like, stopping, like... A massive virus, which I can't think of any other book that has done that. Forward slash sarcasm. Yeah, no, I understand understand what you mean. Um, but I, I would worry about spoilers in something like Pandemic Legacy if it involved elements that I don't already know about, <laughs> right, in those games. That's a weird thought. Isn't like, it? Yeah, a book spoiling a board game. Yeah. Wow, I didn't even think about that. Because I'm not, I'm not really sure how I feel about spoilers in board games generally. Like, I don't think you care that much, do you? I know some people that don't want to know really anything about a board game, even if it's not like a legacy board game, even if it's just a normal like Euro or whatever. They don't want to know too much about it because they want to feel the game as they get into the game, right? Mm. And <laughs> but like, no, I want to know everything about it before I start playing it. Really, I find that so bizarre. I am definitely one of those people that wants to know very little. I I get annoyed by Google spoiling me a comic book that I'm never going to read by going, <laughs> did you know that this character died in this comic book? Oh, damn you, Google. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Why I'm so precious about it, but. But I feel like I want to I wanna have that experience for myself. So, like, someone spoiled episode seven for me. And I was just like... Yeah, I know. Uh, going into the cinema, I was like, why? This is so annoying. Like, I didn't want to know this. Whereas I'm, I'm the opposite. If I found out a spoiler about a film, I'm, like, looking forward to that thing in the whole film. That's so bizarre. Isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's very bizarre. I guess I, I, I wouldn't be bothered about pandemic spoilers from a pandemic novel because I don't think I would ever read it, if I'm honest. As, as much as I like Pandemic, and I do like Pandemic very much. I think there is definitely a gap in the market for very well-written Yeah, but like there are that. only so many very good writers, and which one of them are going to want to write I novelizations would, of board games? I would read a Catan story by Murakami. Yeah, that, I, I don't think he's... <laughs> he's uh, maybe, maybe once it gets big, you know? It's like one of those things where... Like, uh -huh. you, you don't expect it. And, like, the MCU, suddenly the the Asmodee <laughs> universe of novels is just the biggest thing in literature. The ACU, ABGU, Asmodee board game universe. Uh-huh, mm -hmm. uh-huh, uh-huh. Looking forward to it, Asmodee. You, 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 you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I think we've talked enough about Pandemic. Yeah, let's move on to a slightly more exciting game. Copenhagen. I think you should tell people about Copenhagen. I uh, just want to briefly let people know, this is a copy of the game that we have purchased ourselves mm -hmm. uh, at the UK Games Expo. And I should probably give people a disclaimer about my personal bias about Copenhagen. You see, Elaine, here's the thing. I was not born in Copenhagen. Were you not? No, I was born in, in a little city called Klaipeda in Lithuania. And as such, I am inherently biased, even though Klaipeda has nothing to do with Copenhagen. Wait, isn't Klaipeda twinned with Copenhagen? That I mean, might be a thing. You could pretend that uh, the game was based in Klaipeda if you wanted to. Well, I don't think our architecture is as pretty as that. But I'm going, I'm going on my more, Google device. More Soviet. <laughs> and I feel like we're twinned with Copenhagen. So th th my bias joke, which was a naff joke, I'm sorry, but th this might be a thing. No, that's nonsense. We were twinned with Leipzig in Germany. <laughs> Maybe there'll be a game about Leipzig one day. Still, still not a game about Klaipeda. Maybe there'll be a game about Klaipeda one day. I'll, I'll even take Vilnius, right? Okay. I, I don't know why I'm That's pronouncing... it. Monopoly Vilnius. You know, I'm pronouncing that with an accent now. I'm oh, pronouncing yeah. it as an English person would pronounce it. Isn't that weird? Anyway, Copenhagen. <laughs> would you like to tell us about Copenhagen? Copenhagen is a really pretty game where you're playing with Tetris-style polyominoes. And you're either taking cards or you are playing cards from your hand in order to put down those Tetris-style pieces onto your board and build your building. I think we can pretty much cut the explanation right there because if people are wondering how exactly is it that game works, the safest way to explain it is exactly like Ticket to Ride. There's a little bit of a difference where if you take cards, you have to take cards that are adjacent to you and when you play cards you're not putting down trains mm -hmm. you're putting down building pieces mm -hmm. which are tetris like mm -hmm. but that's largely the game yeah and there's fewer colors than in ticket to ride yeah but and 
I, I, I should preface probably. I, I think it's a game that's this slightly a bit more mechanically robust than Ticket to Ride because there's there's a little bit more of a um, leeway when it comes to how you can actually put uh, those pieces down. So, for example, if you're putting a green piece down next to another green piece, you have to spend one less card. So yeah. there's an immediate incentive of, hey, if I pick this up and start collecting this, then, you know, I'm going to get rewarded. I'm going to need to take less cards. But if you keep just drafting green cards, you're going to find that very quickly there are no more green cards. And all the different colours represent different shapes. So you can't just keep taking the same colours because you're going to, A, run out of tiles, B, run out of cards, and C, not be able to build your building efficiently. But if you build windows, then you will score two points instead of one. So that's that's pretty much... You need to just build six rows with windows and you won the game. And of course, the way the pieces are designed... You can't really do that. Yeah. Uh, which is the fun part of the game. But there's also abilities. Basically, every, every blueprint of your building has these coats of arms. And every time you cover one up, you'll get to choose a new ability that you can... Power off any time in the game. So instead of taking two cards, you can take three cards. Or instead of taking adjacent cards, you can take cards from anywhere on the board of seven cards. And as you use these up, they'll be turned over. But guess what? If you get another coat of arms, you can flip all of your used up abilities face back up again. And 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 that's cool. That's, that's a thing that's not a thing in Ticket to Ride. And the third thing that you can do if you cover up one of those coats of arms is take a one single tile window that can go into one of those spaces that you just haven't been quite able to fill yet. And I, that's that's the complexity of the game. That's yeah. that's it, isn't it? We bought the two expansions as well. No, uh, three expansions, I think, isn't it? Are there it? three expansions? I think it's three. I think there's one separate one uh -huh. and then two in one bag. Right, okay, so I think we're going to have to talk about expansions at, at the end, because I think, I, I heard, Elaine, that mm -hmm. you had some thoughts about those. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, only minor thoughts. Uh, so I should also probably mention that uh, Copenhagen is designed by Asger Granerud and Daniel Pedersen, which I am absolutely certain I just butchered <laughs> as, as a trope. In most board game media. Oh, there's a foreign designer name and I've pronounced it incorrectly. So I'm sorry, Asger and Daniel, but uh, they are the designers, uh, or one of them is the designer of the very famous and popular Flamme Rouge, which mm. is also another pretty light game that emerges with some meaty decisions as you play. Do you it's feel all right. You'll, you'll get your place in the sun when a Lithuanian designer makes a game, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then you'll be like, yeah, I can pronounce this fine. I've got it. Yeah, <laughs> my jam. Do you, do you feel like you've had some meaty decisions in Copenhagen? Or, or if not, do you feel like you've enjoyed yourself? I did enjoy myself, yeah. yeah I'm, well, not sure, I'm not sure I was making super, super deep decisions, but certainly there are times when you think, oh, okay, I can just fill this space. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're like, oh, but if I fill this space with this other thing, if I just wait one more turn, take a couple more cards, then I can fill it with something with a window and then I would get that extra point. And because there are only 12 points to win, it really matters. And that's, I guess, that's that same tension that you get in Ticket to Ride. Should, should I just lay these trains out right now before my route gets blocked up? Mm -hmm. Or should I just patiently wait and keep drawing cards till I get what I need, never being entirely sure if the cards that I need will actually come out by the time mm. my turn kicks back to me. Or if someone else will take them before you get a chance to. Yeah, that feeling was very familiar. And I, I feel so torn about this because I'm not sure which game I prefer more, actually. I, I enjoy both games. It, I honestly have not played Ticket to Ride in, in quite a long time, mm. but... That's because I think maybe I've outgrown it or maybe played it too much or, you know. Yeah, I think it was a game we played quite a lot when we first got it. Yeah. Um, and then we just moved on to other things to play. But it was fun returning to this. And yeah. I, I feel like I'm doing Copenhagen a disservice by comparing it to this other game that's so ubiquitous and so well known. Mm. And it's not like they're the same games, but there's a certainly... A DNA that they share. Mm. I don't think even the designers could deny that themselves. I, I I imagine like if you design something, you know, and and people start drawing similarities to this other thing that's been 
out and about for quite a while, you you feel a certain preciousness towards your design. At least I would, I think, mm. if I designed it. But but there's 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 a lot of similarity there. Not just in in terms of the mechanisms, but directly the feelings that it makes me feel when yeah, I play not, that it's game. It's not a bad thing. It just is a feeling of familiarity, and that's mm. nice actually. And I'm always looking for games that I can play with my parents or, or your mum, like at Christmas or when they come over. And I think that would be a perfect game to play. I should probably also mention just how beautiful Copenhagen as a board game is. Probably Copenhagen as a city. I sad to say I've never been, but now that I've played the game, it's a cliche thing to say, but I kind of want to go, you mm-hmm. know. It's like, all these buildings are very pretty and I, I, I would like to see them. I'm hoping they're not made of Tetris tiles, though. I'm yeah. they're made of something more solid than that. But you know what? Like, I, I wouldn't say that the artwork in, in this board game is particularly amazing. I think that the reason this game pops so much is just because of the color palette mm. and how well it was actually chosen. Mm. And that's such a minor thing, but it adds so much... To the enjoyment of the game and even though that there's red and green in it mm-hmm. i think it still would work to some extent if you have color blindness because the shapes are different some of the shapes are the same but you can just pile these those piles into like a separate although cards right the cards, cards would be the yeah. immediate problem so you'd have to have a good memory yeah i get oh but oh see the cards also show you the shape as well yes. in terms of like hey in in this in this color configuration, you have these shapes, yeah. right? So that might be a decent identifier and a helper for those who are colorblind. Why don't you tell me about the first expansion? Because you have tried the first expansion, haven't you? Yeah, so the first expansion has multicolor tiles. In the main game, you, you're you drawing cards and then you're just playing those cards to play that color tile. But in the expansion, each tile has two or three colours on it, so you need to play two or three different colour cards in order to play that shape. That's largely the addition? That is it, yeah. Do you feel like that added much to the game? Like flexibility or like extra decision making? Not or really. I kind of wish it had been part of the main game. Yeah, and I I, I remember talking to you about this and, and you had a bit of a bugbear with the cost of the expansion. Yeah, only because... So the the main game was thirty five pounds, and mm. then the, the expansions all together were another twenty, which came in a baggie. Which came in a baggie. The game didn't even come with baggies, like proper baggies to put the pieces in. But it's okay if you buy the expansion, you'll get the baggies. <laughs> no, to... you just get one giant baggie right, okay. <laughs> to chuck everything into, which was a little bit frustrating for the price. Um, but I guess I guess the expansion is a lot of what the main game is apart from the boards so Mm. the price discrepancy wasn't that much but i still think it was a lot of money for what you get well if you think about it it's just a few extra sheets of cardboard and i know in terms of production you would you said you would have been happily paying like a ten or more right uh to to have that everything be part of the main box because 35 pounds for a beautiful box. Oh, it's not a lot. No. It's not a lot, right? You, you and, and also all that production and effort that went into the design and the playtesting and mm-hmm. all of that. Like, you're paying for that. I understand that, and that's fair. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I still think it was a little bit on the steep side for what you get. So we didn't play the, the second expansion, mm-hmm. right? So maybe that adds a lot more, and I think it probably does. You you get extra plastic tiles in it, um, and maybe it adds a lot more variability to the game and if it does then it's probably is worth it but you were so angry you didn't want to play because you were <laughs> upset true. about the cost you read the rules and you were upset about that's, the cost that's you said, ah, i'm not playing this but it, we i think we're detracting from from the fact that copenhagen is a pretty fun game and if you're thinking about buying a ticket to ride this might be a great alternative that feels slightly more fresh and th- th- there are little mechanical changes specifically yeah. those one-time use abilities i think they add that little extra bit of variability and 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 a sort of a little bit extra decision space mm. to to something that feels pretty familiar and pretty comfortable mm. and, and and I think I think that is a good thing that you have this everybody knows what Tetris is mm-hmm. right so if you're showing it to someone who doesn't play board games that much then you're not trying to explain this mega complicated mechanism that they've never heard of they they're going to know what that means like the the polyominoes have to fit together right mm. and that's a that's a nice thing to start with so overall yeah i would i would recommend this game okay letter jam
Letter Jam. I am excited now because this was <laughs> this was one of my highlights of UK Games Expo. I really, really enjoyed playing this. A big thank you to Paul Grogan, who was working at the demo stall for Czech Games Edition and demoed this wonderful game to us. Letter Jam is a game about letters that will put you in a jam. And that jam is trying to figure out what secret word I have just been given by my friend. Uh, the thing about Letter Jam is that basically you get some letters that are face down and you don't know what they are. And they are in a jumbled order. And if you were to re rearrange them in a non-jumbled order, they would form a word, whatever word it is that your friend came up with. So everybody gets an actual word that's been jumbled up in front, in front of them and they can't see what any of those letters are. But one at a time, you will flip one of those letters in a Hanabi-style fashion <laughs> where your partners will see the letter, but you won't. And there's going to be then some clue giving. And that clue giving is basically one person saying, I think I can make uh, maybe a five-letter word out of all the letters that I see, and it will involve maybe three other players, right? And and then other people will pitch maybe more letters, maybe involving maybe less letters, but involving more people. And then you're going to just, based on that information alone, pick one person to say a word. You do also get two random letters from the top of the deck that are shown to everyone. So you can involve those letters and you get a wild card that can be, it's kind of Scrabble style where it can be any letter, but once it's that letter, it's only that letter for that round. Oh, and that sounds so good because, oh, we get any letter. How, how powerful is that? And then you realize that what you're actually trying to do is you're just trying to give clues to people as to what their letter is. That word that you're giving is actually irrelevant and meaningless. It's just, it's just code for this might be your letter because what happens then, you're basically putting down poker chips that say, this person has the first letter. This person has the second letter. This random letter is the third letter. And actually, that wild is just misinformation, right? Unless so you say a word that is only can be one word, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And it can only be that letter, then it, you still don't know what it is. Okay, so imagine that right now I'm seeing A, T, and E amongst my friends. And using the wild letter, I say, you know what? I can make a four-letter word. It's going to be involving three players and one wild letter, right? So you put the first poker chip on the wild letter. Yeah. Give the second, third and fourth poker chips out to A, T and E. Yeah. And then you write that down. So what is that first letter? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It could be late. It could be mate. mate. It could fate. be fate, pate, whatever. Pate. Or pate. <laughs> <laughs> so first you have a wild letter. Nobody knows what that is. Then they can all see that the second player's letter is A, apart from the second player themselves. And let's say I'm, I'm the third player, and all I'm seeing is that the second letter is A and the fourth letter is E. But I don't know what my letter is. And even if I guessed... It could be cake. Yeah, it could be cake. It could be anything. But because it's just two letters. That clue was rubbish. <laughs> and that's what we quickly discovered, that we were mm -hmm. very good mm -hmm. at giving rubbish <laughs> clues. But that's not a problem because you don't immediately have to actually guess what your letter is. You can wait for more words and get more clues towards your letter. And suddenly you're playing a deduction game with letters with the information you've been given. But you only have a certain amount of rounds to do it in. All of you. Yeah. Otherwise and, you lose. And one of my favorite moments is, is the uh, demo are always going... Do you want to lock in your letter? Which means you basically have to move on from letter that letter and people won't be giving clues about it anymore and there were so many lovely ways that that game blossomed and evolved and what i really like about check games designs right is the pedigree of playtesting that they employ because it feels like every problem scenario that they could come up with has been somehow answered 
in a very simple mm. rules twist, you know? Mm. Like, it felt like, instead of instead of the game being patched up, it felt like the game was evolving. And I feel mm. like that was the real beauty of that design. So, for example, what happens when you figured out all your letters, right? Well, you get a random letter in front of you, and whilst people aren't inclined to use your letter anymore, because, hey, you don't need to guess your letter anymore, guess what? There is an incentive for using your letter, because... As soon as your letter is guessed, or you guess your own letter that is the bonus letter, not part of your word, that goes into the center of the table and is now a letter for everyone to use. That's nice. Yeah, I never got that far in the game because I could not guess <laughs> two of my letters. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the one bit that we kind of struggled with, right? There mm. was a moment where everyone just had consonants, mm-hmm. right? And... <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's really hard to make a word out of five consonants. consonants and one wild letter that could be a vowel. And it's it's worth repeating that that wild letter could be repeated twice or even three times. So, uh, But it has to be the same letter. There are only so many words in the English language that use... With K and W and <laughs> Z. And- and then three A's, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kaka is one of them, but that only gives a clue towards two letters. So it's mm-hmm. no good. Mm-hmm. It's really no good. Just mm-hmm. like in the real world. It only gives a clue towards one letter because you're using the same. Yeah, yeah. I don't even... I know it doesn't can... give a clue at all. That's the thing. It's... You think you're helping someone, but you're not because both of those are then unknowns. I ended up with the word ched at one point and i thought this can't be right elaine that word was chad that word was chad that i i wrote i wrote that clue what did what yeah okay. well chad the name and then chad the country i think i had c blank blank d and i thought okay the second letter i think maybe an h yeah so i thought okay ched is that a thing like i, I love my ched <laughs> like oh no like a colloquial term for cheddar do you, i don't know do you know <laughs> <laughs> I think I've realised that th- this podcast has appropriately basically just turned into us jamming some letters into it and uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. and and we're not making a lot but of sense. But I started, okay, so I started with, I fell into a trap, right? I uh-huh. started with um, not knowing what my first letter was and whoever said the, that they had the word, my letter was picked as the first letter of that word. And the rest I understood of, all of that. Good. Good, I'm glad you're keeping up. The rest of the letters were O-C-K-E-T. So I thought, okay, it's either rocket or locket. Or pocket. Or pocket. Or so, socket. Or socket. So then the next... Cl- so I, I didn't lock in that round. Then the next round, I thought, okay, it really can only be an L or an R. I can't remember what the other letters were, but I thought mm. it can only be an L or an R. I'll work out what this is based on the other letters. So I locked that one in. We went through the rest of the game. And my other three letters were A-S-H. So it still could have been Lash or Rash. And I was like, I don't know. But that was the beauty of it because, and here's something that you got wrong in the demo, Mm. and turns out, again, another beautiful part of the game, Mm. you don't actually have to guess the word that is in front of you. So those letters, the jumbled up letters, all you have to do at the end of the game is you have to rearrange them so they make a word. And it doesn't matter if that word was the word that was given to you. If it's a word, it's fine. And that's so beautiful. Mm. Because you might figure out that what you have in front of you is nonsense, but that's okay. You can make something out of that nonsense. (laughs) I really, really like Letter Jam. Yeah, me too. I can't wait until it comes out. I think I was told it's coming out sometime around Gen Con? Mm. Yes, I think so. Or maybe Essenspiel? One of those two big conventions. I think it's being released at Gen Con, and then it's coming to Europe like in Essen time, mm. around Essen time. But yeah, if you've been a fan of word games, word-based party games especially, and if you've enjoyed Codenames, this is nothing like Codenames, but it has that same beautiful, well-thought-out design that mm. Codenames has. Oh, it sure does. It just engenders fun. And I, so far, who knows? Things might change. But so far, highly recommended. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's dip into the final feature of the reviewing side of this podcast. Blood on the clock tower. That sent one or two chills running down my spine. Half a chill. Half a chill, yeah. <laughs> a mild, mi- mild temperature drop. 
<laughs> so here's the thing. Blood on the Clock Tower generated some minor infamy when Shut Up and Sit Down, Quentin Smith specifically from Shut Up and Sit Down, named it his favorite board game of all time. And the new intern Kylie also named it her favorite board game of all time. And... That was enough for me to want to go and play their favorite board game of all time. And thanks to Angelus from Storyboard Gamer, we have now played it. And I say thanks because uh, Quentin Smith very kindly lent us his copy whilst we were at UK Games Expo. And that copy did not have a rulebook in it. There's a rulebook online, but internet is spotty at the hotel that we were staying at and out of nowhere angelus pops up and i knew like a superhero like a superhero and i knew he knew how to play that game and i said <laughs> angelus will you run us a demo and he said i will and then ended up having to uh run it again another three times i think maybe that evening alone because i saw him running that game quite a bit he's certainly a champion and absolutely and we are very grateful and he did it as he just landed in england mm. on his aeroplane from australia and did it so beautifully as well like so it because it needs someone to be quite uh theatrical i think when describing things and telling people things and because if you just said it in your like normal hello i welcome to blood on the clock tower it wouldn't yeah. go down so well it wouldn't create that atmosphere and he did a fantastic job at doing that yeah he started with there's been a murder and dun, that dun, murder dun. was me i was killed <laughs> i'm like oh no that <laughs> was great so here's the thing about Blood on the Clock Tower, it's a social deduction game much like Werewolf, and exactly like Werewolf, it needs someone running the game, and that's what Angelus was doing for us. Not only did he teach us the game, he facilitated it, mm -hmm. and he did it beautifully. So, big props to him, but here's the thing. Blood on the Clock Tower deserves the kudos, I think, quite a bit, because it was very, very interesting, and it differed from other social deduction games in in a very subtle but very profound way. And I think some people had a problem with the Shut Up and Sit Down review because they didn't quite figure out how different it was. But now, having played that and looking back on that video, I understand the challenge in actually relaying that difference. So if you're not familiar with social deduction or werewolf in general, basically, you play in a group of people and you are assigned a secret role, and that role might put you on the side of the villagers. Or in the case of Werewolf, uh, you would be secretly a werewolf. Or in the case of Blood of the Clock Tower, you would secretly be a demon. And it's basically a team versus team game, except that the demon team is much smaller. So we were playing an eight-player game, and the demon team was the demon and another imp. And guess who was the demon in that game? <laughs> it was Efka. <laughs> oh, I really, I really wanted a slightly more neutral role, if that uh -huh. makes sense, because that was the, now it was the second game we played at the convention, yeah. and I immediately had to jump in. You did well though. I, I, I did well, but I lost. But mm. I really tried to mastermind that game into some sort of a, you know, interesting finale. But I was caught out right at the very end, and it was a struggle. But here's the thing: unlike Werewolf or other games in the genre, I feel like it really zeroes into those two terms, social and deduction. And you might ask, well, what's different about that? You know, like if you play Werewolf or, you know, Secret Hitler or One Night Werewolf or whatever, it is all about deduction and all about talking to people. But the thing about Blood and the Clock Tower, and I don't know if you agree with me mm. on this, but I felt like the social aspect was different because it created different conversations. Mm -hmm. And the deduction aspect was different because there was a much deeper metagame to the deduction. And maybe that's, for me, still the part that I'm a little bit unsure of, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it felt like for the deduction to work, you really had to figure out people. Right, yeah. and that's that's a nebulous thing, right? I yeah, think because because that's a thing in most social deduction yeah. games. A lot of people get paid a lot of money for figuring out people, and that's I believe true. they're called psychologists, yes, right? Yeah, for me, it felt a lot more like something like Two Rooms in a Boom than Werewolf, honestly, because it had very different gameplay from something like Werewolf, where you're kind of just all sitting around a table and 
trying to work out who the werewolf is mm. because you there's so many different roles in blood on the clock tower and there's things that throw you and that i think that's why it kind of reminded me of two rooms in a boom a bit because there's like this drunk role or this poisoned thing that that might happen in which case the drunk person or the poison person won't tell the truth but they won't know that they're not telling the truth necessarily because they don't know they're drunk or poisoned they're just told a wrong piece of information by the facilitator and then they can pass that on or not they can also still lie or yeah. tell the truth and i i like that about the game very much that was so peculiar so here's the way the drunk works and i really want to tell people about mm. this because i think it's it's so a drunk is a role in werewolf right but it works slightly differently mm, very, here. well very different yeah I think, yeah because basically you get a token that says you are, for example, a villager. a villager. But you never, you are never just a villager. Everyone gets a That's special true. role that That's does true. something, right? And you, you get a role, and it says you are doing this, and you think you are doing this, but in fact you are not. And th- b- the only way that emerges is via the consequences of the game. So mm-hmm. every night you'll wake up and you'll find out someone's died, but you don't know. Was it because? I was given wrong information or right mm. information because someone lied to me. And untangling that puzzle is a heck of a thing. And the beauty of Blood on the Clock Tower is that you are giving a sheet with every possible role that you could have and every possible ability that those roles could do. And you're basically sitting there with this sheet and, and trying to piece everything out whilst being very painfully aware that there's a timer on the route. because And the timer is nebulous because, again... The timer is entirely up to the game master. At yeah. any point, they could say, right, it's night time, and it's now time to make accusations and vote. Yeah, you've spoken enough about this. Yeah. Like, let's move this on. And yeah. that's such a weird decision to call it the right time. But if you do it at the right time, and I think that's that's the strength of a good game master in that game, you will have that moment of, oh, no. <laughs> we spend too much but time I, I doing this yeah i want to find out i want to discuss this thing with this person that i didn't get a chance to do and that was so powerful because so when you're used to a social deduction game like we immediately went to play two rooms in a boom afterwards i think or maybe mm. we played it the next day i don't mm. remember but we played that game at the convention multiple times when you play two rooms in a boom you immediately jump into the action right because you're like okay let's color share let's find out and the thing that we did in in blood on the clock tower was I think we were just mostly sat for the first round, not entirely certain what to do with ourselves because we had a little bit of information, but we didn't know who we could trust, how we could relay that. And the great way that the game pushed that forward is, well, nighttime comes and then the demon gets to kill someone and suddenly there's an impetus. But you as a group also get to kill someone to remove them from the group if you think they might be the demon and that is how the the good side i'm doing air quotes the yeah. good side win the game because they kill the demon mm. um so deciding who to kill and you all get to vote so one person will call someone's mm-hmm. name i think this person should be taken out of the game and then you all get to vote if you think that's the right decision and that was really neat the way like it was such a surprise when they called someone and you thought wait that's not who I thought it was at all. Yeah. Could that be the right answer? Or are they just like bluffing? How is this working? Like, it was neat. One thing I really found very peculiar was, and interesting and good, was the moment as a demon where you're given, the game master tells you free roles that are definitely not in this mm. game, but could potentially be in this game. So as as for anyone else's sake, when you say, hey, I am the virgin, for example, which is one of the roles, right? That could be true, right? And we no one know. no one could catch you out, right? Because for all they know, that could be in the game. And you know what the virgin's ability is and because you can you have lie it on that about sheet, that. Right? But here's the thing. I was given free roles. And those free roles were so drastically different in how I would have to approach lying about mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I immediately had such a strong decision and kind of weighing those up in, in my head and thinking, okay, if I go with this, I will have to create these lies and sustain them in that way. And for the life of me, I sitting here and cannot remember what those roles were, <laughs> right? But I remember it being s- such a 
heart-churning moment of actually like uh, none of these are easy and I understand the implications of all of them and they're so different and I have to pick something that I think I'm going to be best at at lying and I went with a role that basically said if people nominate me to be killed then the goodies lose the game and so I thought okay if I immediately blurt out ah I am this role don't kill me then everyone's gonna go Efka's the demon, right? But if I subtly mention it just to one of the players who I know is a goodie, right? Mm -hmm. And then kind of perpetuate that lie to them and towards the end of the game bring out that information, suddenly there's there's an impetus to doubt me, whether whether I am good or, or I am bad, nobody knows. And, and it really confused us all because whatever role that was it meant that the drunk couldn't also be in the game and we were convinced the drunk was in the game so when you said like oh no I'm I'm this role like I'm revealing myself I'm this role we were like what because what what do we do now like what do we do with this information and how do we work this out well that's another bit of doubt that i was sowing because there are four possible imps in the first starting set of characters so another thing we didn't mention there's three sets of characters yeah so it's it's like a playset. you choose a playset and you get like a list of possible characters but you can go with an entirely different playset. but here's the thing elaine i wouldn't even want to go with a different playset. i would want to keep playing that one playset. so (laughs) so that the the strategies and the metagame emerges because i think what blood on the clock tower offers that other social deduction games don't is that emergent metagame. And normally, emergent metagame in Werewolf and Two Rooms and a Boom is like, oh, this person's doing that. That means they're lying. You know, you learn about people. Whereas here, you're learning more about the game. And about the roles. But also still about the people, right? Mm. And there's a real ambiguity and difficulty there because... Because some of the deduction is just unknowables based on how people act. And and that's really hard to suss out. Mm. I would have to add that we didn't play Blood on the Clock Tower in the most ideal environments. No, it was very loud. Yeah, and I'm not sure how much I would enjoy that game more. And I would have to admit that some people were slightly disengaged because as soon as people saw us playing on Blood on the Clock Tower, they would come up and say, hey, is this game good? I've heard so yeah, much about it. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? So, and that was important because yeah. if you missed a bit of information that, that came out yeah. in just the, in discussion, it meant that you were at a bit of a disadvantage. And that, that kind of happened with me because you you had discussed, wouldn't it be funny if this person was the first to die, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then you as the demon did kill that person in the first round. But I hadn't heard you sort of joke about that. Well, that was so beautiful because the idea was that if, if, if we joke about killing this person and that, that person actually dies and my reaction faked reaction right. to I to that is <laughs> you know kind yeah, of like yeah, yeah. oh my isn't god that funny? isn't that funny I can't believe that person died I totally didn't expect that you know hopefully that plants a, a sort of moment in people's head where they go I don't think he's the demon because yeah you wouldn't react like that right yeah so you you get to do these little tricks that you still get to do in werewolf right but but yeah information is so important and I remember talking to Angelus about this after the uh-huh. game and he said yeah I noticed people tuning out because other people were talking to them yeah. and actually I decided to just run with it because that's just part of the game yeah, you know sure. that person's not engaged in that bit they're missing that bit of information and the game still flows right because his job as, as a good game master was to make sure that the game itself flowed right yeah and I think that's really cool how how it holds up together even even in this really kind of nowsy 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 Loy's environment. <laughs> <laughs> now that old Nowsy Loy's environment. Yeah. The thing that I really did like about it was that everyone had a specific role. I know you've mentioned mm. this before, but that they weren't just villagers or they weren't just the red team or the blue team and without a role. Everyone had their specific thing to be doing. And I think that is what separates this this game from other social deduction games. And also how much the roles were involved you know there so for example you you could you could get a role that says if one of the bad team members are sitting next to you then at the start of that round you will find that out Mm. and 
that is so much information. But of course, can your information be trusted? Mm. Are you maybe a drunk? Mm. Has someone poisoned you? Mm. You know, there's so many unknowables that in true social deduction fashion, just because you have powerful information, that doesn't mean anything, you know, because anything could be true, anything could be a lie. And I think that's important to mention because a lot of people said, well, this is just another social deduction game. Mm. I'm not going to buy that because it also costs a lot of money. And you're probably right to do that because I don't think there's anything in this game that will suddenly make you like social deduction games if you don't. It mm. still has all the trappings of the genre. And it, it, it's just, it just feels like a better, more interesting, more evolved design. And I think for those who do enjoy social deduction games, this box that I should mention, it basically comes in a box that you unfold and then it becomes this grimoire with felt tokens that you create like a sort of mind map of all of the players. You know, it's an expensive thing, but it is a thing that I think you could potentially enjoy for a very long time because unlike other deduction, social deduction games, my guess, and my, again, we've just played this once, and I should add that we are planning to play this quite a bit over the time, and when the game hits a release date, we will certainly have a video on it, but my guess is that this game doesn't get quite as stale as other social deduction games. So so if you... I think it's for people who have that group already. Mm, and, and you do need a big group of yeah, people to play it. And enjoy games like Werewolf, but want something a bit more meaty, a bit more involved. I, I think it's a treasure trove for them. Before we dive into the bag of questions, um, I just want to say thank you to anyone that came up to us and said hi at the UK Games Expo and anyone that came to see our Victorian Parlour Games show or came to join us for the live podcast recording of This Game is Broken. We had so much fun. I also want to say a massive thank you to Paul Flannery and Tom Bell for inviting us to do Nightmare Live. That was my highlight of the show because Nightmare Live was amazing and my biggest regret is that that show is not recorded and you can't see it, but oh, I had such a good time. Yeah. I, I didn't know how much I would enjoy Nightmare, but I really, really enjoyed it. They put on a fantastic show. It has panto elements where the entire audience is involved. It was great. Thank you very much. And thank you to Martha as well for being such a brilliant teammate on the Nightmare Live show. Wasn't she great? She was super. So here's the thing about Nightmare. People sometimes, contestants, on it die. Our job was to lead those contestants through the challenges. Guess what? She didn't die once. And <laughs> she really didn't need us. She was like answering all the riddles and like, yeah, yeah she was great. She was great. I mean, I want to I wanna ascribe a little bit of ownership to her not dying, you know, okay, to us. Yeah, fair. You know, but, <laughs> but, but she was fantastic. And I also wanted to say thank you to Asma the UK, who gave us a wonderful gift of 12 packs of Keyforge. Oh boy. Oh boy. So but not just any Keyforge. No, not just any Keyforge. Not only did the backs of the cards have our logo on it but also each of the still randomly generated deck names all had the phrase no pun included and that was that was special obviously we can never review or cover keyforge but right now elaine is looking through the packs to read out some of her favorite names no pun included infinite savant quite like that one that was quite funny. Uh, there was a really good one. Inventive Defiler of No Pun Included. Oh, I used to dance under that name. It Who Prodigiously Races No Pun Included. Wow. I, I, I feel like all those decks are less names and more challenges towards us. And then the crossover one, Z Who Bursts Through No Pun Included. Mm, mm. There was one with a Bronco, I believe. Yeah, there is. The Bronco That Carves No Pun Included. Tom Vassell said, that's my favorite one. And I'm like, is that because we're getting skewered by a Bronco, right? Nice. That, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> Feels like you have some sort of a grudge maybe against us. No, I, I'm being silly. Obviously, this was such a nice present, such a lovely thing and something that we totally never expected. And thank you. I don't know why it was made. It wasn't made with our knowledge, but we were totally surprised and caught off guard. And it was really, really nice. I, I never want to open any of those packs, but also simultaneously want to open all of them. And lay in them. And lay in them. Make a bed out of them. And finally, the last feature of our podcast, time to dip in 
to the mailbag. Today's question comes from Matt Bratton. Uh, Matt writes in saying, As my obsession with board games has grown more and more out of control, thanks in part to Shut Up and Sit Down and Us, I have been dealing in the second-hand market to at least keep my spending under control. Regularly monitoring Facebook trade pages, I found a guy giving away several of his games for free. I was lucky enough to get in on one game, Trajan, before they were all snapped up. But before asking when, where can I meet to get the game, I was far more interested in the why. Why are you giving these games away for free? The answer was that the guy was a big gamer but didn't have the surrounding family slash friends to support his hobby, leaving many a game gathering dust on the shelf. More than this, he said it was depressing coming home every day and seeing them there unplayed. I could immediately sympathize with this. Not long ago, I had a long discussion with a friend about a similar issue. He collected re retro Nintendo games, I board games. Yet we both came to the same conclusion as adults. We can own all the toys slash games we want, but without the time to play and enjoy, they sit there re like reminders of the fun you're not having. Like batteries of fun that no one is using. It almost ends up feeling like a burden or a chore to get through them, rather than the fun and exciting experience you were after when you bought them in the first place. I guess my thought or question is, what are the ties between mental health slash people's states of mind and gaming, and is there a bit of a double-edged sword here? How can something that can provide joy also bring misery? And is there more to the shame pile than we think? Boy... What a loaded mm. question that was. Yeah. So I guess I have some thoughts. I feel like I've been very fortunate as a board game reviewer to not have to struggle with that, but also have to struggle with that because we obviously have giant piles. But then it's part of our job. So we know we have to play them. And we fortunately have a really good friend group that will play them with us. Even knowing that a game is not one they're going to enjoy, they'll still happily indulge us in, in this mm. board game reviewing like that we are doing. But but see, here's the thing. Yeah, for us, I guess there's, there's a different sense and a different feeling mm. when we have a game that's in play that's just, oh no, that's just like more work. And we still obviously quite enjoy playing board games and sorry i used quite in that british sense very whereas, much well, yeah yeah like i mean very much rather mm. than not at all mm. right but yeah so there's a different feeling for me but i feel like if i never became a board game reviewer i certainly have obsessive collective collecting tendencies mm. and and if you grow at if you look at my growing vinyl collection you will probably probably see a little bit of of that sort of same thing there but i i've been very good and fortunate to realize that I have patterns of addictive behavior mm. and I make sure that that doesn't become a problem. And it's easy for me to say because not every person can just kind of make that sort of snap moment decision where I'm, I say, basically, if I get a vinyl record, I am going to unseal it immediately. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put it on the turntable and I'm going to spin it. Obviously, I can't do that all the time immediately because sometimes, hey, I received a parcel and I have to go out, whatever. But right, I, I try to make sure that that happens within the day. And Elaine's tutting at me like I'm being a little bit overly descriptive right now. <laughs> but but here's the thing, right? I, I think that you can certainly uh, develop addictive tendencies towards board game purchasing. Mm. And I, I think some people probably struggle from that. But And the difference, I think, with that hobby of collecting records is that you can do it on your own, whereas a lot of board games you need to have... And you you can do it on your own, you can enjoy the music, you don't necessarily need other people to be there to enjoy that yeah. record that you've bought. But with a board game, you, I, I would say generally people buy board games in mind to play with their friends. Yeah. And, and if you can't fulfil that wish, then they, could, they can become reminders of the fact that you haven't been able to meet or get together or play that game. And sometimes you could be in a group of equal enthusiasts who all buy board games and then everyone wants to play their game, right? Mm. Rather than the one that you purchased. Mm. And it's certainly a complicated situation. But I, I think it's important to be aware that like anything, board games can be an addiction. And uh, it, it's easy to say and it's difficult to handle, mm. right? 
but it's not a bad thing to talk about it. I think I think it's a good thing to send out a reminder that hey, this could be a thing, and this mm. could be a thing that you're actually suffering from and you're not aware of, and it might be something to look into. You know. But yeah, heavy heavy yeah. subject matter. And it doesn't matter if you only have one board game on your shelf. There's a tendency to think, oh, okay, let me get this and this and this and this. But it it doesn't matter. If, if you have one game that you like playing and you can play it over and over again, that's fine. You don't need to have loads. No, that's true. Yeah, and I, I, I think there's, there's certainly obsessive elements in bo- board game collecting. And even people who constantly call their games you know and say hey i'm trying to have a perfect representation of kind of like all of the genres you know it's a perfect light game that i have that i like the most or whatever it's still obsessive collecting you know and a little bit and that's fine like if if you're fine with that and you you are okay with the games that you have and you can afford that and you get to play them then that's fine. Well, here's the thing. I think we zeroed in on it. You need to make sure that what you're getting, that the money that you're spending or whatever it is you're doing to get board games, I hope nothing bad, you need to make sure that you're having fun, right? Yeah. That 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 thing that you've just acquired, that object, right, that's actually making you happy rather than making you miserable. It does not become a ball and chain. Yeah, Right, and I I think that's the best advice that we can give. Yeah, for sure, and and also like as unqualified professionals, if you're struggling to find a time where all your friends can get together, don't forget there are board game clubs and groups and London on board and meet up type groups that you can play with too. Yeah, go check those out. Meanwhile, you might make some friends. I think it's time for us to check out out of this podcast and go play some more games. There's a lot of. A lot of review copies in that corner waiting for us. <laughs> they certainly are. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine.